chapter 6. Yes, right. Today, uh, by the way, if you're visiting with us and, and you have children or you're visiting with us and you don't have children or if you are just a person that sees children around you this morning, let me tell you why that is. Uh, on the fifth Sunday of any, we have, I think, four fifth Sundays this year and on all of them, we chose for 2015 to do something that we call Beautiful Chaos Sundays. And, and that is we, we want to emphasize that we value the family and we value children and we value you. We are for you because God is for you. And so when you see some kids getting restless and you see them drawing on their little, you know, coloring books and, and doing all that they do, just be reminded that here at this church, we want an environment that is inviting for families and they feel they can come and they're not a distraction, but we love you here. And so we want to, that's just a healthy reminder on the fifth Sunday. So welcome to, to beautiful chaos Sunday here at Alberta Baptist Church. Interestingly enough, we ended up on one of the most difficult passages today in all of scripture. I, I would say in the amount of time that I have been studying and teaching God's word, this is the hardest text I have ever approached. This is the flood account. This is the story of Noah. And you may say, well, what's so difficult about it? I mean, you know, there, there was a flood and then he got all the animals on the boat and they all held hands and it was, it was fun, a nice little journey. One day he got off, you know, that kind of thing. It, it's a lot more difficult than that. And so today I want us to prayerfully enter in to this time of studying God's word. So if you will, I wanna invite you to join me as we read the text for today and then as we pray together. We're gonna read the first, uh, let's see, we'll read the first 14 verses. This is the word of God. When man began, began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as their wives, any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. 
and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Let's pray. Father, we need your grace and we need your power to be present with us this morning as we look at this text. Lord, help us to understand rightly what you have given us here in Genesis 6. Help us to receive it, knowing that you are God who is great, but you are also a God who is good. You are a God who can be trusted with all things. Your wrath is perfect. Your love is perfect. God, help us to see that most clearly today as we end up looking at the very Son of God who would die for us on a cross and raise for our life. God, we love you. We thank you for Christ. May he be lifted up today as we study your word. Amen. Amen. What I'm going to do today is we're going to begin by just breaking down the text. So we're going to do somewhat of a, we're going to interpret God's word there, the first eight or nine verses, and then move into a time of application. So I want to warn you, if, if it takes a little bit in breaking down the text and you go, he's not even gotten to number one yet, I'm very aware, okay? Got to watch on right here. We got this, all right? The Lord's going to lead me. Here we go. You ready? Let's do it. There's a lot here in this text. What we want to do is see there in verse one of chapter six that it says that when man began to multiply on the face of the land, daughters were born to them. We need to see first that, that they are doing what we would expect to take place. They're being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. This was the very heart of God. This is what he uh, called mankind to do, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Okay. And so they are certainly being obedient to this part of the task. And so the earth is being filled with human life. Secondly, though, we see something that should catch our eye. I'm sure it caught yours as you were as you were listening there, and it is very difficult, a very difficult part of the text or portion of the text to interpret. And so let's look at it. It tells us what happened as they were multiplying. It says, verse two, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. The language here is very strong. This is very similar to what we see in Genesis 3, with Eve and Adam, they saw something, they thought it was beautiful, they took it, okay? We saw something in a way similar in chapter four where where there was a circumstance that Cain saw, he then took the life of his brother. Here in Genesis six, we see the human race acting here, the sons of God, they see the daughters of man, they see them as beautiful and they take them. This should not be looked at as sweet. This is obviously a perversion of some sort. 
Now, there are several interpretations that have been given throughout church history. All tend to be respected viewpoints. I'm going to give them to you very quickly, three, three of them. I do not want to ignore this. I, I wanted to, but I can't. And so I'm going to give it to you. Three possible interpretations of who are the sons of God, who are the daughters of man. One interpretation is this. It goes back a long way, all the way back to a, to a couple hundred years after Christ. Uh, his resurrection, and we can find this in history, where it was believed that the sons of God and the daughters of man refer to fallen angels. The sons of God refer to fallen angels. You'll remember in the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 6, talks about the sons of God. That, of course, is in the heavenly realm, referring to angels. Satan, for whatever reason, if you're reading the book of Job, you notice that he is actually in a conversation with the Lord there and should connect us to that phrase, sons of God. There's a couple other places in scripture we see it, but connected to angels, so sons of God. Now, if that is the case, that should draw our attention to a couple of other places here that we just read. One, verse four, it says that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. Now, if you will think back to Numbers 13, this is when God's people were going into the promised land. They, they went in and they got scared because they said the people were giants. They were so large in their sight and they referred to the Nephilim. They said that they were like grasshoppers in their sight. And so because of the reference here of what would appear to be and can be or has been translated giant, though I don't know if it should be in the text, uh, people have taken that sons of God to be that, that there was an angel man uh, baby and they grew up and they were giants. That, was, that is a interpretation. It has been respected throughout uh, church history. There are certain reasons why we might have a red flag with that. One is the reference to Christ when he's talking about marriage in heaven and he says that we, will, we would be like the angels not given in marriage. It does not mean though that on the earth that would not be possible. That's referring to in heaven they could not have those kind of relations. It does not necessarily mean that if they were fallen on earth that they could not. So anyway, as crazy as that may sound, that is a, a very common interpretation of this text. We, I want you to, to also see and remember that Satan that we just saw in chapter 3, he also is a fallen angel. So it, it's not that out of place in the book of Genesis to have one who was in the heavenly realm there on the earth. And so one interpretation, sons of God referring to angels and they took human women as they pleased. It's an interpretation. A second one is this, is that the sons of God refer to kings or great warriors of this time, possibly that were demon possessed. This is a possibility. And so that the, the, the women that we see are the daughters of man really refer to what would be similar to like a harem is, is really the picture here. And so they just took whatever women they wanted for selfish purposes. Okay, that's another possible view. The one that I believe, and, you, and I'm not saying this has to be it because I believe it. One of your pastors believes this third view and it is this, is that in chapter four, we had a breakdown of a genealogy of Cain. 
Okay? In chapter 5, we have a breakdown, a genealogy from Seth. Seth's line is looked at as righteous. Cain's line is looked at as wicked. And it appears to me that in the flow of this text, chapter 6 is saying the sons of God, referring to men from Seth's line, that they took women from Cain's line and they married and had children. Over a time period, they gave in to moral decline and there was great wickedness on the earth. Regardless of what your interpretation is, and after you study it, whatever you might believe, the point of the text here is that there was great sin that had taken over all of God's creation, so much so that God had a plan to absolutely remove human life except for one family, okay, to blot out humanity. This wickedness is discussed here with the assumption that these marriages are very morally uh, wrong or there is a lot of wickedness that is in this relationship. There's also the talk down in verse 11 through 14 of great violence. And the only point I want to make here on that is this, is that typically when we talk about sin or a moral decline, whether it's in a nation, in a world, in your life, in my life, many times it can be placed into a category of us trying to live apart from God in the areas of sexual immorality or anger. And so we'll see a morality issue with sexual perversion or Violence or both together, you'll see that as kind of, that's the, the headliner on the newspaper of the nation that is in moral decline. Do you understand? Whatever the case, the sin was so rapid, it was so bad, that verse 5 says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man, that it was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I want you to think about that for a second. I'm gonna read it one more time. This is verse five. This is the Lord's, as he is discussing what it is like in the mind of the man that he made in his image. I want you to listen to his words. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so that's what we have happening here. The Lord then was pained in his heart. He was grieved in his heart and it says that he ever made man. This does not mean that the Lord made a mistake. This means that he is one who has allowed himself to be so connected to the life of man that he was pained at their sin, that he suffered along with mankind as he looked on their sin. It said, and he can do this because he is free to execute righteousness. He is free to execute wrath. He says, I'm gonna blot out mankind. In the midst of this wickedness, in the midst of this proclamation of blotting out mankind, the word of God tells us that he found favor there was, there was a man named Noah that found favor in the eyes of God. In the midst of all of this great wickedness, there was one that walked with God. His name was Noah. The Lord told him what his plan was. 
He tells him that he will destroy the earth and tells him a way of rest and safety from his wrath. He tells him to build an ark, a very, very large ark. And take your family on board and a whole lot of animals. And we are told that Noah believed God. And listen to this. And then he obeyed him completely. Look at chapter seven, verse five. It said, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Just as a reminder, it's never rained before. It has never rained before. The Lord tells him, on dry land, I want you to build this large of an ark. And he did. Over possibly 120 years. Can you imagine how long that would be? Telling everybody that looked at your boat that you were building and you said, yeah, God's gonna, he's gonna remove all of flesh because of your sin. Because of the sinfulness of mankind, he is going to remove all of you from the earth. Change your ways, turn. But as you can imagine, they thought he was crazy. What reminders do we need to see from this text this morning? I may ask it this way. What takeaways might the Lord have for you today as we study this passage from Scripture? I'm going to give you four. Look with me at your outline. You've got it there in your worship guide. Genesis 6 reminds us of many things, but here's a few. Reminds us of, number one, the seriousness of our sin. Genesis 6 reminds us of the seriousness of our sin. I'm going to give you a statement. I want you to write it down. And by the way, I know as I'm saying this that there are possibly some in the room who you may have great doubts about uh, even the truth of God's word. You may be struggling yourself with, uh, with many things of faith. And I, and I want you to listen to me today. What I'm going to say, I believe, comes directly from the Lord and it is found right here in God's word. I believe it with all of my heart. And here's the statement. It is that all sin, any sin, is infinitely offensive to God. I'm going to say it one more time. Any and all sin is infinitely offensive to God. Now, what is sin? Is sin just sexual immorality and violence? Well, no. The easiest way, I think, to understand sin is this, is anytime you desire within your heart to live apart from God. When you try to live apart from him and his promised word. And just so you know, every single one of us have done that. We do that. Sin is infinitely offensive to God. Now I'm going to make it personal and this is where it gets upsetting. Your sin and my sin is infinitely offensive to God. There are great consequences to our sin. Whether they realized it in Genesis 6, I, I don't know. I don't think they did. But their sin was infinitely offensive to God. Whether you realize it yourself today, whether our church realizes it, whether our culture realizes it, sin is infinitely offensive to God. 
All of us have lived apart from him. I also want you to know under that same point there uh, about the seriousness of sin is this. And we see it highlighted here in the scripture and it's one that we need to lift up. And, and I hope every kid here, I hope every uh, teenager, every adult, I hope we see this and we see the possibilities that are here. And it's this, in the very midst of a wicked generation, in the midst of great sin and immorality, in the midst of a whole world seemingly living outside of the promises of God and his word, I want you to see it's possible for you to walk with him. It's possible for you to walk with him. In a place where the Lord said every intention, not just, not just the thought, the intention of their thoughts, every single thought they had, it was only evil continually. In that environment, Noah walked with God. I want you to hold your place and flip over to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews has been really good to us here in this study. I feel like we've gone and we're just walking straight, straight down the passage of Hebrews 11. Uh, we were there last week and we're there again this week. Look with me at verse 6. And following verse 6, we're going to see a word on Noah. The word of the Lord says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen. Listen, it never rained before. You've got to understand the amount of faith here. He had no reason within his flesh to believe that it made sense to build an ark, yet he did it because God told him to. It says, concerning the events, events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. That means, that means basically the ark was his gospel. It was his good news. He placed his faith in the Lord for safety, for salvation, and the Lord gave it to him. The Lord granted it to him. Noah is a man of great faith. It's possible to be a man or a woman of great faith in the midst of a world of wickedness. And we need to see that today. The seriousness of our sin. Your sin hurts yourself. Your sin hurts your family. Your sin hurts the church. It hurts the culture. Sin hurts and it destroys. Okay? We're very aware that you're a sinner here. I'm very aware that I'm a sinner standing before you. I want you to know that God has shown his love most for sinners. And then he sent his son, Jesus. Jesus died for my sin. He rose from my life. I believe in him. I've received his grace. And I want you to know every single one of you in the room today that there is grace deeper than your sin that's found in Christ Jesus. You are all welcome in this place. God is for you. You know why? Because, I mean, we're for you because God is for you. We're glad you're here today. But every one of you need to understand the seriousness of our sin. Secondly, we need to see, and this gets difficult, we need to see the holiness and the justice of a loving God. The holiness and justice of a loving God. I, I remember... 
when I was a child growing up, I, I wasn't really as that connected to a church, but I certainly was under some teaching of the church. I, I remember being in VBSs. I remember being around uh, certain teachings of God's word. And, and the story of Noah was one that I was aware of. I've told you before, I remember being, being late in teen years and trying to just recount and catch up, you know, in, in reading God's word to understand it. After I, I became a believer when I was 18, I was 19, 20 years old. And all I really knew was that Father Abraham had many sons and many sons had Father Abraham. That was about all I knew. I did know about the story of Noah, though. I knew about the ark. And I would imagine that you do, too. I would imagine all of you probably if not from God's word, from a movie, whether it was accurate or not, you, you know something about, about Noah. But here's the thing that I never grasped when I was growing up. I knew about the boat. I knew about the animals. I knew about the smiles on their faces. You know, like when, when you look at the little pictures that are on the wall in, in the classrooms and, and things like that. What I didn't realize was that God's wrath is what this chapter is about. I didn't realize, I didn't allow my mind to realize this until later in life, that God flooded an entire earth. Now there's question about the scope of landscape that was flooded. Genesis 11 would give us some assumption that mankind was really in one centralized area. And so he may or may not have flooded the entire earth just because the language says that there's plenty of places. The entire earth went to Joseph in Egypt, the scripture says. So it's possible that it was referring to the Mediterranean area or the ancient Near East. But regardless, mankind died outside of one family. It wasn't Herod that did it. It was God that did it. It wasn't Herod that took the life of children. It wasn't that. It, this was God, the God of the Bible, sending a flood upon the earth and everyone except for one family and all animals except for the animals that were on the boat, all of them died. Today, we need to understand a couple of things. One is that God is holy and God is just. We have to realize that. We also need to see in that same category that God is the most free being in all of the universe. He can be trusted. He will never out act outside of his character, but he is much more free than you or I. And he is able to execute with brilliance and perfection what is in his will. And God saw the wickedness of man. He knew the seriousness of their sin. He knew that sin leads to death. And God had the capacity and the desire and the knowledge to know that the best thing was to execute that wrath upon mankind. And he flooded the earth. We need to see the holiness and justice of a loving God. God is holy and he is just. He will punish sin. And I need you to understand the scripture's loud proclamation to that today. He will punish sin. Whether you want to believe it or not, whether it makes your stomach hurt or not, it, it really doesn't matter. 
I think it's very normal for you to read this story. You're not a bad person because you read this story and it makes your stomach hurt that he flooded the earth. You're a normal human being that has emotions. But that does not mean that is not exactly what took place and that it was not right. God flooded the earth and he was right to do so. He executed it with perfect holiness and perfect justice. Today, you need to see he'll punish your sin. It may not be a popular message, but God will punish your sin. Our option is this. He either punishes our sin on Christ on the cross or he punishes our sin on us after our death. The good news is we can believe on Christ today. We must see the seriousness of our sin. Secondly, we must see the holiness and justice of a loving God. Thirdly, please don't miss this. We must see the love and the grace of a holy God. We must see the holiness and the justice of a loving God, but also the love and the grace, the mercy, the patience of a holy God. I thought this was so neat. I, w- I was doing kind of a, a word study and I went back a little bit to chapter five and, and was just kind of looking at those names. And there's, there's one, uh, a couple of places there in, in chapter five that catches our attention. One is the words there. Look back in chapter five, verse 28, you've got Lamech and it tells us that he lived 182 years. He fathered a son called his name Noah. So Lamech named his son Noah. Noah sounds like the word for rest, okay? And so a lot of times we'll say that the name Noah means rest. And I want you to see what Lamech says about this son that was born to him. He says in verse 29, he called his name Noah saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief or this one shall bring us rest from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. What he's saying is this one is going to bring an answer as it were to the curse that came in the garden. Now we see a portion of this displayed in Noah being the one that the Lord would save through the ark. We see a little bit of the rest there. Ultimately, we see the greater Noah, if you will, the one that would come, the the greater type of Noah, the type of, uh, it'd be Christ, that would come, that would give us permanent Sabbath rest. The one that would rescue us completely from the effects and the power of sin. That would save us from the wrath of God, Jesus Christ. That was one thing that caught my eye. Second thing was this on the love and the patience and the mercy and the grace of God is the man Methuselah. Now Methuselah is the granddad of Noah. Methuselah was the oldest human being that we have recorded in scripture that lived on earth. He was 969 years old when he died. The name Methuselah can mean a couple of things and is interpreted to mean a couple of things. One interpretation is this, don't miss it. It is, it can be man of the dart or man of the spear, or it can also be this. This is, Methuselah can mean this, his death shall bring judgment. 
And you may say, what are you talking about? Why are you telling us this? We see from this man, it's believed by many by doing just a little bit of math that the year that he died was the year of the flood. His death shall bring judgment. Note that he was the oldest human being that the Bible gives us, that Bible history lays out for us. I believe giving us a picture of God's patience with mankind. 969 years old, at his death, the flood came. Now, I don't know that for certain that that's the reason why that was given, but it sure does seem like that is pointing us to see the mercy and the patience of God. I want you to know today that God cares about you, that God loves you. And maybe you read this or you heard this text and you said, but how could he? I mean, why would he do that like this? Why would he send a flood? Why wouldn't he have just, you know, fixed everything in chapter three, verse eight? Why wouldn't he have just done something? And I want you to know it's this because he loves you. Because God is patient with you. Because God has mercy for you. See, God loves and he humbled himself to extend his love to us. And you know that when you love somebody, you open yourself up for heartache. Don't you? The God of the universe, the most powerful being in all of the universe, the one that spoke creation into being, he humbled himself to love us. He humbled himself to the point where he could be pained because of our actions. And we see here in this text the very love and the grace of God and that he was pained. It didn't mean that he made a mistake. It didn't mean that he went, oh, what did I do? It didn't mean that. It meant that he looked on to creation and he was grieved in his heart. He was pained in his heart. God was willing to suffer to love us. I believe we see that most clearly in our fourth point today. And I want you to see not only the seriousness of our sin, not only the holiness and justice of a loving God, not only the love and the grace of a holy God, but also, and lastly, the seemingly foolish gospel of God. I mean, how foolish does it seem that he would say, I'm going to punish all of the earth. Noah, here's what you need to do. Build an ark. You'll be safe there. How foolish does that sound? I want you to know it really doesn't sound a whole lot more foolish than a cross. Something else crafted out of wood. Doesn't seem that much crazier than a cross. That we would walk the streets of the ends of the earth saying that your hope is found in one who died upon a cross. That is the seemingly most foolish message that we could ever hear. Yet for those who believe, we know it is the very power and the grace and the salvation of God. The seemingly foolish gospel of God. It is here in the gospel of Jesus that we see how number two and how number three can both be. 
Because I want you to consider this today. I want your mind to be pressed. I don't want you to suppress what's being said today. I want you to press into it. Number two and number three that we have looked at today are both true and they can both be true. God can be the just and he can be the justifier because we can look upon what Jared read earlier, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 and 11, because on the cross, his love was most clearly displayed and that Jesus Christ became the propitiation of God. The saddest fire of God's wrath. See, on the cross, Jesus Christ took the full weight of the wrath of God for the sin of anyone who will believe. But not only did he take the wrath, he also displayed the love of God that he would be there for us, that he would die in our place. There is no clear place in all of scripture. And today the most wonderful thing that could take place is if your heart was able to grasp the beauty of the cross of Christ this morning. And you were able to see that God can be both loving and wrath and a God of wrath. He can be a God of love and a God of wrath. He can be a God of justice and holiness and also a God of grace and mercy and love. He can be both. He can be all because we see it displayed there perfectly. When the son of God died, he died in our place. See, you must understand this morning that because of your sin, you're so much worse than you think. You're so much worse than you think, but we see on the cross also, you're so much more loved than you could ever believe. The Lord loves you today. Please, please church, look to the cross. I remember being a, a few weeks ago and I'll, I'll end here. I'm gonna be very transparent with you. I, I, I'm always a little nervous when I, when I get too transparent, but I'm gonna do it anyway. A few weeks ago, I was looking ahead to this scripture. I'd been studying Genesis chapter three. I was studying, studying the Satan and the deceiver and, and him questioning the very goodness of God. And, and then I, I began to study ahead and I made it there to Genesis six and looked upon the flood. And I want you to know that my heart was filled with fear. I had a, really a full day, maybe more than 24 hours of, of great, I would say, anguish, anxiety, uh, fear, some doubt. Uh, I, I began to feel what I would call darkness until it got to the point that I literally laid on the floor and I said, God, help me believe today. Help me believe today that you're good. Help me believe today that you're righteous and you're full of justice and wisdom. Help me believe today that you're patient and you're kind. Help me believe. And I just sat on the floor until I realized that my God loves and my God cares. He cares about each one of us in this room. He cares about the entire world. He loves us, yet he is serious about sin. And as difficult as it was for me to think upon what the implications of that really is for this world. I need you, at some point, you gotta see it. You gotta feel it. It means that outside of Christ, people have no hope. And when I felt that, I had to, it pushed me to the floor because I either needed to have some other option or I had to go to the ends of the earth and tell our church we gotta go. 
And that was where I landed. This is 100% true. And every single one of you need to understand today that I stand before you not proclaiming something that I do not believe. I stand before you proclaiming the truth of God that we are all sinners in desperate need of God's grace and it has been given to us freely in Christ Jesus to take and receive. If you have never received the gospel of Jesus today, understand there's something worse than a flood. It's the very wrath of God. And it will either come upon you or it will come upon his son as it came on him 2,000 something years ago on the cross when he drank the cup of wrath. That was such a big deal to him. There was so much anguish in his heart as he approached the cross that he sweated drops of blood. That's how fierce the wrath of God is. Jesus Christ was abandoned so you didn't have to be. Jesus Christ died so you could live. Jesus Christ became poor so that in him you could be rich. Today, will you believe the gospel? Church, if you've believed it for the last 40 years of your life, believe it deeper today. We need Jesus Christ. This passage here in Genesis 6 points us to the only hope we have. It is in Jesus Christ, the very son of God, the maker of heaven and earth. He's our savior. Stand with me.